Thanks, Kuli. And uh, here comes Ang Harid to bring our reading from Matthew. The reading can be found on page 930 in the New Testament section of the Bibles. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, beginning to read at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, thanks, Angharic. I'd love you to have that uh, passage open, page 930. I'll be referring to it uh, as I speak this morning. But uh, as we prepare to feed on God's word that was written thousands of years ago, that brings life today. Let's pray that the life of the Spirit will be evident and abundant in us as we focus on the truth. Father, here we are, hungry for you. We say today, this morning, we want more of you to shape our lives, to live in us, to guide and direct us as individuals and as your church. Father, as we begin this series on the church, looking at these images and pictures that the New Testament presents, may they not just be conceptual realities, but living truth in us. So help us, Lord. Give us insight. Give us the courage to explore and to be challenged. Teach us this morning, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Just so you know, I thought a little bit of uh, background on how, you know, how, do we, how do we get a sermon series? Where does that come from? I just sort of jump on the internet and sort of see what other churches do. Uh, well, actually, sometimes it's quite interesting just to see what other churches do. But all the while, I'm t- personally, I'm trying, and I, just with one or two other people who I know are sort of praying and thinking and have the teaching of the church close to their heart, I'm, uh, I try to keep a term ahead. So I'm, I'm, now, I'm now sort of beginning to think about the summer term. <laughs> And I've been thinking about this and praying and just kind of having it rolling and sloshing around in my mind and just in my prayers over the last few weeks and months. Uh, and uh, sometimes it seems clear what the Lord is wanting to, to teach us 
at this time. What I'm really asking is, Lord, there, there are lots of things. I, we could do lots of things. We could you know, go through all sorts of books of the Bible, or we could take various themes. Lots of things we could do. Lots of books and guides out there I could pick off the shelf. But what do you want to say to us, Lord? What is it that you want to say to us at this time in this place? So I did that with a series on Exodus last term. And I, 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 you know, I, in one sense, I'm not that surprised when a number of you come up and say, oh, you know, I've got a lot out of this. Because I feel the Lord showed us that and revealed that this was what he wanted to teach us at this time. And uh, it is, it's just become quite settled to me. I'm now deeply convicted that for this term, we as individuals and as groupings within, under the umbrella of St. Dionysus, we should look at what the church is all about and to go even deeper than our understanding already exists as to what it means for us as individuals and as groups and as a church and as a church here, St. Dionysus Parish Church, as part of the wider church in this uh, nation. So I want to look at the church and my heading this morning, as you'll see from the term card, what on earth is the church? What on earth is the church? And let me start by saying this, that some people have suggested that um, maybe Jesus never intended to found a church. So much of the teaching in the Gospels as we've received it is of the kingdom. Most of his parables are to do with the kingdom, with what God's life looks like on earth, um, how that sort of is rolled out, what heaven, if you like, would look like on earth. And Jesus teaches into that negating some of the things that they've heard before. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And trying to roll out what heaven looks like on earth. But there's very little mention in the Gospels of Jesus' teaching on church. In fact, this here in Matthew uh, 16 is one of only two references to the church in the Gospels. So did Jesus mean to found a church? Well, I want to argue from this passage, yes, he did, but maybe he didn't intend quite what we understand by church. And it stems from our unfortunate dual use of the one word, church. I, I know I've mentioned this before, but it's worth, I think, repeating in order to emphasize the difference. We talk about church very often to refer to the building, this building. So we say things like, oh, I'm going to church, or I'll see you in church. Well, I'll meet you there. I mustn't be late for church. I, I meet people occasionally around about saying, oh, we ought to come to church. As if it's some kind of duty to attend for an hour in a week. And I want to say that none of that is the biblical understanding of church. None of that comes anywhere close to what Jesus intended. Church is not, but we ought to refer to this as the church building, really, if we were just going to be precise in our terminology. This is the church building in which the church, that's the people, meet. Church isn't primarily bricks and mortar with a funny-shaped roof. Church isn't about um, clergy. Church is the whole people. It's fascinating, uh, not time to look into it now, but in, just before God gives the Ten Commandments to the people, in, uh, uh, people of Israel, just before that, he says, I've raised you up to be a kingdom of priests. It's not just Aaron and the sort of particular religious caste, everyone is to engage in the activity of God. So the church isn't just about someone who wears a dog collar. I, I, I sometimes wonder whether I ought to wear a dog collar on a, on a Sunday. I sometimes wonder whether I actually I ought to, because we're all, or either that or I give you all dog collars and we all wear dog collars to denote the fact that 
that it's not just about the clergy or a particular type or caste. I'm going to leave that down there for the rest of the sermon by way of illustration. It's not just about the services and what we do on a Sunday for one hour. So we're religious for a bit and then we kind of carefully box it away until next Sunday and then get on with normal life. The word that the New Testament uses for church is a Greek word, ekklesia. And it's taken from contemporary use of the, uh, in the first century, and it literally means a people gathered for a particular purpose. Ekklesia is a people gathered for a particular purpose. So uh, when 40,000 or so gather at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea Football Club, they are an ekklesia. They're gathered for a particular purpose, a rather rum one if you ask me, but nevertheless... And if you ask any of the guys dressed in blue and white uh, scarves and shirts and so on, why are you here? If you go around Stanford, why are you here? They would very quickly be able to give you the reason why they're there. We're here to cheer on Chelsea. Poor things. They need prayer. As a Chelsea fan at the back, shaking his head quite rightly at the moment. They're an ecclesia. And Jesus came on earth ostensibly, among other things, to establish, to found an ecclesia. That's people called for a particular purpose. That purpose was to recognize who he was, to recognize that in Jesus all the promises and the plans of God had come together, had coalesced and, and begun to be fulfilled on earth. He was the one, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. We'll come on to that in a moment. And the church exists as a people gathered to worship him, to recognize him and worship him as the one who unlocks all the promises, all the power and all the authority of God. He's the one who unlocks heaven on earth. And the church meets ostensibly to recognize that, to revel in it, to worship him and to seek to serve his purposes on earth, to carry on the power, the influence, the teaching, the impact of the kingdom. That's the definition of the church. It's not the building. It's not a particular priest or a particular type of uh, leader. It's not a particular activity at a particular time. It's just any gathering, anywhere, of people who meet to worship God and serve in his name. I've got a, got a meeting tomorrow in the vicarage uh, of certain church members. That'll be ecclesia. That'll be an expression of church. When we meet midweek for St. Dionysus Central, uh, February the 9th, and March the 9th, a priority, it's on the term card, stick it in the diary, book the babysitters now, because we're going to be ecclesia there. We're going to be church meeting midweek, not on a Sunday morning, but on a Tuesday evening, 9th of March and the 9th of February. That is what the church is. That's the definition. I want to look at two further headings, if I may. Uh, what this church is founded on, the foundations of the church, and secondly, what is the purpose of the church based on what Jesus said here? I've looked at the definition. That was my first point. Secondly, the foundation. Thirdly, the purpose. Let's look at the foundation. And here we need to look at this little encounter in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has drawn his disciples away from where they are. They're north of the region. In this extraordinary town, incidentally dotted around with pagan temples and a palace to Caesar. So it was, it was sort of pluralistic then just as... The world in which we live today is largely pluralistic. Pagan worship, worship of Caesar, idolatry. And within that heady, pluralistic context, Jesus says, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? Referring to himself, a nickname for himself. Who do people say that, in effect, I am? Of course, it's always easier, isn't it, to talk about what other people think and to proffer sort of third-person opinions. So they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, a mouthpiece of God or a forerunner to God's, uh, God's Messiah. Um, yeah, there are all sorts of theories that abound, and we could sit and discuss these theories. But when it comes to the foundations of the church, in fact, when it comes to the foundations of Christian faith, do you see what Jesus asks next? Verse, seven, verse 15. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? I imagine there was a bit of a silence. He was sort of looking at the feet and sort of shifty little looks one to the other, these disciples. Jesus has asked them directly, who do you say I am? I want to say that Christian faith essentially boils down to that, to you recognizing that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the universe, as we were singing earlier on, asks you that question. Who do you say that he is? Who do you understand him to be? Who do you know him to be? He's not asking you what other people think. He's not asking you for books you might have read or for theories or for articles in the newspaper. He's asking you for your own personal understanding. Who do you say I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replies, You are the Messiah, in other words, the chosen or anointed one, the Son of the living God. The first foundation of the church, the foundation of Christian life, is confession. It's the speaking out, the clear articulation of who Jesus truly is, not just the carpenter, not just some kind of preacher or a rabbi who's causing a bit of a stir, not some kind of figure of history, not a sort of like one of the prophets or like John the Baptist. This is who you uniquely are. Peter says, you, you are the one in whom all the promises of God come to find their fulfillment. You are the one who unlocks heaven on earth. You are God's representative, the son of the living God. Here and now on earth, I see who you are. Peter's personal confession, I see it. I see who you are, and he speaks it out. That is at the very essence, the heart of Christian faith, to recognize who Jesus Christ is. We had, um, as I say, dozens, hundreds of people in this building over the last month who recognized Jesus as we had this uh, had a little crib here and a doll in there, and they recognized baby Jesus. Yes, that's it in part. But the wise men traveled some distance to see an infant, and in seeing the infant, they recognized who the infant really was. That's why they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, signifying the fact that this is not just a baby. This is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Have you made that discovery. At the start of this year, as we're kind of thinking through resolutions and so on, and looking ahead to the year, looking ahead to how we want to live, 
how our lives are to be shaped. Can I ask, is all that you're looking to achieve, all that you're looking to do this year, in whatever sphere, at home, at work, within the life of this community, is it predicated on an understanding of who Jesus is and a willingness, an ability to confess that, to speak that out? Do you know, I, there are some of us here who've been meeting here for weeks and months and years, and I don't know whether you've ever really spoken that out, whether you've ever really said to someone else, do you know, this is what I believe. This is who I understand Jesus Christ to be. I'd want to say, and I'm probably going to say one or two controversial things in the next few weeks, one or two things that might prickle or just, you know, just cause discomfort. I want, to, I want to question whether you are a member of the church. I know you come here week by week by week, month by month, year by year. I know you're known by many of us by name and so on. But if you are not able to understand and to declare and confess who Jesus Christ is, I don't know whether, I can't say yes or no, but I wonder whether you are part of God's church here on earth. How can you say that, Tim? Well, because when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, verse 16, verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He responds to what Peter says. See, Jesus knows he's got a work here on earth to do. He's got a church to build. And he knows that he needs to have members of that church who know who he is and who understand who they are in relation to him. Blessed are you, Simon, Son of Jonah, Jesus knows that Peter, Simon Peter as we know him, is imperfect. He knows that Peter's going to stuff up. In fact, in the very next section, we see that happening. We know he's going to make mistakes. Jesus knows that. But the one thing that Jesus knows is this. Peter gets who Jesus is and is willing to speak it out. Where do you stand? One thing, just if we're beginning to worry that it, actually all relies down to my ability. See in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's a very significant response of Jesus. You see, it's Christian understanding, Christian confession, the foundations of the church cannot solely or uniquely come about through human ingenuity, human intelligence, human insight. We can see so much. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. We see an amazing cloudscape or a beautiful sunrise. We see some wonder of creation. And we go, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. We might even say that's miraculous. That, that somehow goes beyond what human beings are capable of. There must be someone out there. We can glimpse and feel in our own understanding for God. But only God can truly and fully and completely reveal God. Only God can truly and fully reveal God. Just as in relationship with me, you, you, you could get to know me and you could make some guesses about me, but you'll never truly know me unless I choose to reveal elements of myself to you. Unless I begin to tell you a little bit about myself. You can make some guesses about what I'm like or my interests or my hobbies. But you'll never really know unless I begin to reveal what they are to you. And so it is with God. 
He has completely revealed himself to us in Jesus. But we won't work that out unless the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see. So that Simeon can hold a tiny baby and say, Now my eyes have seen the long-awaited Messiah. So that uh, Philip and the early disciples can see Jesus, and John the Baptist can see Jesus and say, and it's right at the start of his ministry, and say, Behold the Lamb of God. What do they see? A sheep? No. They see a rabbi. They see a man. But they see what that man represents. They didn't work that out. No human being can see another human being go, I can immediately see all the promises of God fulfilled in this person, such that I will confidently declare he's a lamb of God. That's revelation. And that's what Jesus affirms here. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Peter. You could not have said that unless it was by direct revelation of your Father in heaven. That's the foundation of the church. That's the rock, verse 18, that, that Jesus refers to. He gives Peter, or Simon, son of Jonah, he gives him a new name. I'll call you Peter. In Greek, that's Petros. And on this rock, in Greek, that's Petra. It's a little sort of play on words. I'm going to rename you on the basis of your confession, on the basis of what you've just spoken out by way of revelation. I'm going to call you a rock. And on this rock, the rock of your testimony, the rock of your confession, the rock of what you've just seen, I will build my church. The church, by definition, is not a place, not particular people, particular things at particular times. It's a gathering of, gathering of people with the purpose of worshipping God and making him known. And it's founded on a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, revealing supremely who God is. And that comes through spiritual revelation, not our own ingenuity. That's the foundation of the church. That's the foundation of our church. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It isn't, we're not in denial about the other religions that are around this place, just as they had other religions to contend with then. There's paganism, there's all sorts of other religions, there's all sorts of idolatry prevalent in our society. I'm not blind to that or unaware of that. I'm just saying Jesus is Lord of it all. We've got to work hard at how we engage with other religions, listen carefully and respectfully, but Jesus is Lord. At the name of Jesus, Every knee shall bow. I haven't worked that out. That, that comes through revelation. And we, we receive it by faith. And we live in it by faith. The more we live in it and walk in it by faith and obedience, the more we come to know that it is true. That's the foundation of the Christian life. That's the foundation of Christian lives together, the church. Thirdly, briefly, what's the purpose of the church. There's a definition, there are foundations. Thirdly, the purpose of the church is articulated by Jesus here in verse 18 and 19. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will build my church. The purpose of the church is that it will be built, that Jesus will build it or grow it. I've been talking about foundations, and I, so I guess the image is, is of a building. Um, you lay down firm foundations. You take time to build foundations. I, I believe to a sense in this sort of season here at St. Dionysus, that's what I and we have been doing. 
I know at times it's been frustrating for uh, a number of us. We, we long for the church to be a little bit more uh, prevalent, a little bit more uh, effective in certain areas. We, we'd love for this place to have more people, to be f- for it to be fuller, for the lights to be lighter, for the seats to be more comfortable. We long for, I long for loads of things. But before you can build all those things, we need to have firm foundations. The conversations I have around about the place, I know not everyone who comes here regularly understands who Jesus is. We can only build so much if the foundations aren't in place. But I'm wanting to suggest that this, I, and I, I think, I have a conviction actually from God, that in this next little season, this term of teaching, we're going to look intentionally at, in a sense, completing the foundation work and, and beginning to build so that the church grows in terms of the ministries it puts on, in terms of the way in which we build on what we did at Christmas and reach out to more and more of our community who are hungry to know the truth of God's word and his life in their lives, to bring meaning and purpose to their lives, to help parents in their parenting, to help uh, marriage relationships and, and friendships, to help people to relate well, to parent well, to feel that their lives count in some way, that there is an answer to rampant individualism. There is an answer to rampant consumerism. We're not completely dictated to by the markets, whether it's up and down, I go up and down with the sort of footsie. There's someone more constant. There's someone more real. There's someone more eternal than just the economy. And you can trust him and base your life upon him. That's what I long to see more and more of in this church. Actually, some of the other metaphors I think are more helpful because a, a, a building necessarily is, if you use that, that image, is static. But a body moves and is dynamic. A family grows. The relationships change and develop and mature within the security of a family. An army, it recruits and then it goes on maneuvers. It, it goes on the offensive or it defends that which is already the territory it already has. It's active, living. I will build my church, Jesus says. That's the purpose of the church. One of the exercises we could do in our groups over this, uh, these next few weeks is to do a real honest inventory and sort of audit of the church as, as we're gathered here or as we gather in our small groups. Do we feel like we are growing in a dynamic way? Are we active in a sort of precise and focused and envisioned way? Is there a sense in which the gates of death, in other words, the enemy's ultimate power over us, death itself, the the very taking away of life, is there a sense in which death is defeated when we meet together? Do we know ourselves to be powerful and effective and victorious in that way? And if not, let's begin to explore why not. There'll be areas where I think we do, where lives are being changed, where people are coming into the kingdom, coming into a relationship with God. But could there be more? And what could we do to see that come about under God? Here's the ultimate purpose of the church in verse 19. As Jesus commissions Peter, and we stand in Peter's line, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, Jesus says, of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, Jesus says. Keys are a symbol of trust and authority leading to effective, powerful living. 
If I give you the keys of the church, I'm basically saying, I, I trust you with the, the church building. I trust you with all that's within the church building. I, I, I'm kind of uh, you know, commissioning you to take responsibility for the church building, to open it up, to lights on, heating on, all that kind of thing, so that, so that ministry can take place. If I say to my kids, here are the keys to the car, I'd be mad. No, uh, uh, well, I would be right now, but in due course, when they come of age, they've done their driving test, they're qualified. I know they've, you know, they, it, there's, they've received sufficient revelation, if I can play with that analogy. I know they've got the foundations for driving. Here are the keys. You may have the car. I trust you with the car. Now, you may effectively have authority to become the monarch of the road, which one of our children in particular can't wait to have happen. Keys are a symbol of authority. Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? His intention for the church, through Peter's foundation, is that heaven should begin to be exercised and lived out on earth. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Ooh. That sounds a bit serious, doesn't it? I confess to you, I was familiar with this verse, this little commission of Jesus, for some time, and I used to shy away from it, for, for many years as a Christian. Because I understood that Jesus commissioned Peter, and through Peter and the witness of the apostles and the prophets, and all down the centuries to now, I understood that I, I, I stood under that inheritance. That as Jesus spoke that to Peter, and as I am in Christ, he speaks that to me. I give you the authority to bind on earth what is in heaven and loose on earth what is loosed in heaven and I thought I, that just sounds like too big a responsibility I, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just be nice that's what I think my calling as a Christian I'll just be nice to as many people as possible but this sounds a little bit scary and what I came to realize is this that Jesus is not calling Peter to determine heaven on earth but to announce heaven on earth. It might be more helpful to read it like this. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will already be bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth will already be loosed in heaven. In other words, the realities that exist in heaven, all the things that we want to set loose, love and joy and peace and forgiveness and freedom and healing and wholeness, we want to set loose on earth and we declare it to be so because it's already so in heaven. We're simply unlocking heaven with the keys so that it's let loose on earth. And what isn't in heaven? Well, sickness and disease and despondency and despair and isolation and depression and all of that kind of stuff that inhibits life, that's not in heaven. And so we bind it on earth because it is already bound in heaven. We're not at liberty to set a mandate for what heaven's like. Jesus has already done that for us. He's already revealed what heaven is like as he's begun to live it out on earth. And he gives us the keys to unlock the truth and the secret of that life. That's why revelation is so vital. Revelation isn't presumption. We don't sort of make a, a best guess at what the church should look like. God reveals it to us as he did to Peter here. And on that revelation, commensurate with our faith, we begin to walk out heaven on earth. 
with the authority that Jesus gives us. That's the purpose of the church. It's a challenge. We'll have to do a fair amount of thinking. It'll, be, it'll take courage, the kind of courage that some of us had to muster up as we walk into the pubs and start to sing. That kind of thing. It's stepping out of whatever is your little sort of circle of fear. It's pushing back those boundaries. And that's what I want us to be engaged in this term, in our small groups. It's effectively to ask, you know, in any kind of meeting, when we have meetings, uh, when we drink coffee at the back, when we have midweek meetings, when the mummies meet here, which is fantastic, the mums and toddlers, or when the dads and nads get together, whatever meeting it might be, it, it's effectively to be authentic church is to ask these two questions. Lord, what are you revealing to me of what could be loosed here in this person's life? What, what, what could they do with more of that is in line with your character, that is, is kind of let loose in heaven? How could that be let loose on earth? And the, and the equal and opposite question is, Lord, what is, what is inhibiting life here that simply doesn't exist in heaven? What, what sort of insecurity or insignificance or fear is paralyzing human beings down here that simply doesn't exist in heaven? So what can we bind here? Because it's already bound in heaven. Let's not step out in presumption. Let's hear the Lord. Let's wait. Learn how to pray that we see the Lord and the reality of heaven and we declare it to be so on earth in our triplets, in our house groups, when we meet here on a Sunday. <laughs> I love that. I hadn't heard that story about the, so the, one of the bar staff has to come and tell someone in the pub to get off the table and put your arms down. <laughs> it's probably to do with health and safety. I'd love to be in a position where I'd say, please, can you get off the pews and stop leaping and swinging from the shaft? Please, please. And, and we, we can joke enough, but what is it that inhibits us? It's a, it's a question to ask. What, what, is, what is binding us as we meet together? What, what, what is obviously from time to time prevalent here that would not and is not prevalent in heaven? Revelation, the last book of the Bible, gives us an image of what it's like to worship the Lamb. Night and day, they sing and worship and praise. Now, I know we've got families and jobs and Sunday lunch and so on, so let, there's an element of practical. <laughs> but in our hearts, in our attitude, it's the purpose of the church to take the keys and to unlock heaven on earth. That's our purpose. And it's that purpose that I want to explore in the coming weeks as we go through this series. Just finally, uh, and I, this, I, I close with this, it's just that in our neighboring parish, Christchurch Fulham, there is a conference taking place in March called the Jesus Ministry Conference, basically talking about much of the ministry of Jesus, much, uh, all the things that he did while he was here on earth and how we can stand in his line, uh, teaching on how we can be released to carry out effective Jesus ministry as individuals within the church. I've got some flyers here, and I'd love you to consider attending 16th to 20th of March, uh, just a couple of months away, across at Christ Church, Fulham. One or two of us here have done that conference before they're rolling it out again and found it to be incredibly helpful and fruitful in our lives so uh, I, I commend that conference to you to go alongside this preaching series on the church let's stand together I'm going to ask uh, Jamie to come back we're going to sing our final hymn as we sing this hymn we're going to take an offering 
by way of a response to God and all that he's done. Let's just spend a moment or two as Jamie comes, just allowing the truth of God's word, his mandate for the church. I gathered people confessing his name as he reveals who he is to us so that we can step out with the authority of heaven on earth. Just a moment before we sing, just to allow the Spirit to speak to us. Spirit often brings conviction. There may be one or two of us here where you know there are certain areas where you've known this truth. This this isn't new teaching to you. You've known this truth but actually not stepped up to it. Just allow the Spirit now to reveal why that is. And with the conviction too for a fresh anointing as you stand under the authority of Peter, the apostles and prophets, the early church, it's the same spirit now as then who equips, who calls, who anoints. I'd encourage you now to ask the spirit to receive him so that you can play your full part in God's church here on earth. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Anoint your church. Release your church. Fill your church with power from on high. Here comes the church. In Jesus' name, amen. We sing our final hymn, I Stand Amazed. Jamie leads us.